That is a great, great song, though, and uh, it's just a pleasure, pleasure for us to travel together and to serve the Lord, and I am so grateful for Brother and Mrs. Ferguson, Brother and Mrs. Burks, and I'm also thankful, Pastor, for the hospitality and for the wonderful time that we've had together. We're going to take our Bibles, we're going to turn to a very familiar passage, I think, to many of you. In fact, it's one of those chapters in the Bible that as soon as you mention the address of it, in fact, if you mention a word, you probably know the address. And that's true of only a handful of chapters in the Bible. And certainly those of us that are, those of you that are new to Christ and Christianity may not know this. But for example, if I say the word shepherd, you would think of one particular chapter in the Bible. Now there are 1,189 chapters in the Bible, but you probably have one chapter that comes to your mind. What would that be? All right, Psalm 23, very, very good. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If I said love or charity, you would probably think of 1 Corinthians chapter number 13. Very good. There's another familiar passage, and that's where we're going to turn tonight in our Bibles. And then the word faith comes to mind, you probably think of. Hebrews chapter number 11, right again. So let's take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter number 11. And you'll be thankful I'm not going to preach through Hebrews chapter number 11 tonight. And it is uh, identifying for us 16 wonderful, now here's the key word, examples. Examples of men and women by name, 16 of them are given to us. And uh, then those that are designated simply as others. But I want you to consider with me this evening how imperative, not just important, but how imperative it is that you and I become men and women of such extraordinary faith, dependence, trust upon God and His Word that we become examples unto others. You know, there's a great uh, power in being an example to someone else. And when we come to Hebrews chapter number 11, to these Hebrew believers of the first century, God steps in and he reminds them of the testimonies of 16 extraordinary men and women who had this in common. They depended upon, they trusted in God in such an exceptional way that they became examples to these believers. Now, 2,000 years later, I want to be that kind of an example to other believers. I want my life to be a testimony of faith in Jesus Christ to such a point that those that are around me, those that listen to me, those that meet me, and those that watch my life, that they may be encouraged to also live a life of faith and dependence upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the point this evening of this message is I'm going to talk with you for the next few minutes on how important it is that we have heroic examples of faith in God in our lives and that we become heroic examples of faith in God through our lives. Now, the method we're going to use this evening is we're going to begin by identifying three nouns that are found in the early verses of Hebrews chapter number 11 that are words of description of what happens when a man or a woman, a Christian man or woman, becomes a heroic example unto others. And those words are given to us here in the early verses of Hebrews 11, and I want to mention them to you, and then we'll make application as to how imperative it is and how life-changing it is to these to whom this was written originally. The Bible says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now he's saying you really can't see this matter of faith just by the word faith itself. But it can be viewed through the life of a person of extraordinary faith in God. And so he goes on now to tell us that of all the individuals that would be mentioned, Abel will be number one, verse four. 
Enoch, verse number five, Noah, verse number seven, Abraham, verse number eight and nine and ten. And he'll come back to the picture a little bit later. And Sarah, verse number 11. And we go on to Isaac and to Jacob and uh, and, and then we meet Joseph and Moses and uh, Rahab the harlot and Samson and 16 men and women that are named by God after they had died and many of them had been for centuries in heaven. And God reminds these people that these men and women lived exemplary lives of faith or dependence upon the Lord. Now, we know that faith is essential in life for our eternal life, do we not? The Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But faith is also essential not only for our salvation, but faith in God is essential for our sanctification, for our spiritual growth and development. And there's nothing more important in your life and mine and to God than this matter of our faith in Him, our dependence upon Him. And so with the Bible here, in exalting these people and bringing them to the forefront and highlighting their names out of history, the Bible teaches us how imperative it is that we be examples of faith. And in these three ways that you can actually see in an individual's life. Notice verse number two. For by it, by faith or dependence upon the Lord, trust in Him, the Bible says the elders obtained a good report. Now the first noun that's used here to describe someone, in fact all of these 16 extraordinary individuals, is the Bible It calls them the elders. Now, if you and I are going to be an example of faith or become an example of faith in God, then here's how it is seen. Here is how it will be viewed. Here is how it will be beneficial unto others. You see, the Bible is calling all of these individuals in this sense of their faith in God. They became elders. Now, elders is a very important word. Back to every Bible word is important. But if you don't understand what it means to become an elder, you'll hardly be able to appreciate the value of becoming an example of an elder. Now, all of us are becoming elderly in this sense. Every day of the calendar year in our lives, we get older. And we pass from our, uh, the beginning of life into our, our youth and then into adulthood. And before long, if God allows us to live, the Bible says we may live three score and ten years. That's 70 years and maybe 80 years of age. But eventually, all of us, are we're getting older. That's what elder, first and foremost, meant when you study the Bible. It meant someone who was older. In fact, the first time the word elder is used is in Genesis chapter number 20. And that's what it's talking about there. Chapter, chapter 10, rather, in verse 21. When the Bible talks about a younger son and then an elder son. And there he's talking about the older in the years of their life. Uh, but the term elders began to take on more meaning and significance when you work your way through the Bible. For example, you come to the book of Genesis chapter number 50. And now, uh, Joseph and all of his brothers, their father, Jacob, who was given the new name of Israel, of course, he died. Now, he died in Egypt. But the, the family burial plot was back in Canaan. And so the Bible says that Joseph and all of his brothers, they all went with their father's body and they went back for his burial in the family burial uh, plots there in, uh, in Canaan. Uh, but the Bible says that there were some Egyptians that went along with them. And the Bible says that the Egyptians that accompanied them were called elders. Now, who were these elders? Well, in the governmental system of Egypt at that time, not only was Pharaoh the, the king, but he also had men that were his advisors. They were his counselors, and the Bible calls them elders. Then when you come and you meet elders once again in the Bible history, you come to Je uh, Exodus chapter number 3. 
By now, 400 years have passed by in, in Hebrew history by the time you get to Exodus chapter number 3. And here is Moses. He's about 80 years of age and God calls him from herding sheep to go back into the land of, of Egypt. And when he goes back into the land of Egypt, God says to him in chapter number 3, he said, when you get back into Egypt, Moses, I want you to call for all of the elders of Israel. Now, he didn't mean call for every old man or every old lady in Israel. No, what he meant is that now, by now there are Hebrew men who are designated among the Jewish people, even though they're slaves in the land at that time. They are called elders. What does it mean that they are elders? It means that they have been selected because not only of their age, that they're older in years, but because of their wisdom. They have now become advisors. Now, they worked in behalf of Pharaoh and all of his governmental officials. They realized that with all, with all of these Hebrew people as slaves in the land, that they needed to have some representatives among the Hebrew people. And so there were elders selected among the Hebrew people. By the way, this then over the centuries... It evolved into what in the days of Jesus and actually about 400 to 500 years before Christ became what was known as the Sanhedrin. They were 70 men who were selected generationally because nobody lived four or 500 years. But as they grew older, they demonstrated remarkable wisdom, remarkable commitment and knowledge of the word of God. And so they became what was known as elders in the land. And so that gives you a little bit of history about this matter of the elders. But now when you come to the days of Christ, the elders among the children of Israel, who at that time were under Roman rule and uh, Caesar, they were given a measure of responsibility and authority among the people. And their influence was profound. And they rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah. They did not believe that he was the promised son of God. Do you know they thought he was? They thought one of two things. They thought Jesus was either a liar or Jesus was a lunatic. And by the way, there are only three possibilities concerning Jesus Christ historically. He is either Lord as he claimed to be. I and my father are one, he said. He that hath seen me hath seen the father. Jesus plainly declared when they took up stones to stone him, he said, for what sin do you stone me? They said, because thou being a man makest out thyself to be God. Jesus Christ claimed to be God in the flesh. Now, if he was not God in the flesh, then he was a lunatic. He was absolutely insane or he was the biggest liar in all of history. Now, you'll meet some godless people, and they'll say in their naivety, they'll say, well, you know, Jesus was a good man. No, 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 no. It's impossible, because a good man would not have been a liar. Do you understand? But the Sanhedrin, these 70 elders... I mean, the people watched the miracles that were performed by the Lord Jesus. In fact... Less than a week before they crucified Jesus, a great multitude of people were in the city of Jerusalem. And you remember Jesus came in what we call the triumphal entry. And you know the multitude of people believed at that moment that Jesus really was the king that had been promised in the Old Testament. Now they did not see the cross of Calvary, but they did see the promises of a king. They thought Jesus would come and that the Messiah would overthrow Roman rule and establish his kingdom and they would be free from the bondage of Roman tyranny. But here comes Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. Do you know what they did? He got, a, he got a, an animal to ride on and do you know what they did? They took their coats off they laid them in the, in the road as Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem. They took and cut palm branches off and they laid them on the road. You say, oh, why would they do such a thing? Well, even when you understand their culture, you understand what these people were saying. These people were saying, we believe that Jesus Christ is the king and he's come to emancipate us and to set us free. Well, you know, that made uh, the king very, very angry. But you know what? It also made the Jewish 
elders angry likewise. And do you know what they did? They had such sway, such power, such influence with people that only a few days later, it was the time of the Jewish Passover. And there is a tradition. And that is that a notable prisoner would be set free. And so it is that Pontius Pilate, the governor of, these, of this part of the world under Caesar, that he, he made the proclamation, it's time you Jews can have your prisoners set free. And who would you like to have set free? At that very, just a few short hours prior to that, Jesus himself had been arrested by Roman soldiers along with the Jewish leaders in the community. And now then the people said, Release unto us Barabbas. Now if you'd have known anything about what was going on in the news in that time in, in Jewish history, you'd known that Barabbas was a scoundrel. In fact, he was more than that. He was a wicked, murderous man. And yet the crowd of people said, we want you to release Barabbas. Then he said, and what shall I do with this one called Jesus? And you know what the crowd said? Remember? They said, crucify him, crucify him. What made them change their minds? to welcome Jesus into the community and a few short days later to call for his crucifixion, which, of course, then, then Pilate washed his hands and he allowed that, that uh, dastardly deed to take place. An innocent man was murdered and a guilty man was set free. But do you know why they did it, humanly speaking? They did it because of the profound influence of the elders. You know... Who you listen to for advice determines the direction of your life. The Bible says that these men and women that we meet in Hebrews chapter number 11, they had this testimony. Because of their faith in God, they became examples that you can look to and listen to for advice and counsel in the decisions that you make. Wow, that's what God intends to happen in the life of a man or a woman who gains great faith in the Lord. Now, by the way, these elders then, the first time they're mentioned in the New Testament in the relationship to the church is in Acts chapter number 11. In fact, if you have their Bibles there, you can turn with me real quickly just for a moment there. But in Acts chapter number 11, this is the first time in the New Testament when you'll find these elders, as they're called in Hebrews 11, and historically, as I've taught you in the last few minutes, now here in Hebrews chapter number 11, verse number 30, the Bible says that there was, a, there was going a predicted a great famine. And so what the disciples did, verse number 29 According to every man's ability, they determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. Now notice this, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. By this time, there were elders in the church in Jerusalem, and these elders were responsible for the financial distribution of these resources. So now then, in the churches that started in the book of Acts in chapter number 2 in the city of Jerusalem... By this time, there were men in the churches, and they were called elders. They were wiser, older men to whom you look to count for counsel and advice, and they were decision makers, and their influence was profound in the church. Now, who are these men? Will we find later on in Acts chapter number 14? Look at Acts 14, 23 for a moment. In the Bible now, uh, we find these elders are men who are ordained in every church. Notice verse number 23 of Acts 14. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. Now, would you turn with me just for a moment to Acts chapter number 20. In Acts chapter number 20 and verse number 17, now several years have passed. 
And by the way, you could jump along the way. You could go to Acts chapter number 15. And in the city of Jerusalem and in the Jerusalem church, there were men that were ordained elders in the church there. They were men that they went to for counsel and advice. And their counsel and advice then was uh, very, very important and very, very weighty. But when you come to Acts chapter number 20, the Apostle Paul has been in this region, including the city of Ephesus, for several years. And in verse number 17, he, we find him at a town called Miletus, Acts twenty seventeen, And from Miletus, the Bible says, he sent to Ephesus and called, notice who he called, the elders of the church. He didn't call everybody from the church at Ephesus, but he called the elders. Now, this was the first pastor's school in all of history that we know of anyway. Now, these elders, when the news came to them, hey, Paul the Apostle is getting ready to leave this region, and he wants all of you to come and meet him in Miletus. Now, you know what that was? That meant a walk, that meant a journey of 80 miles. But you know what they did? They came. They came. And he talked to these elders, and notice what he also called these same men. Verse number 28, he's got the elders there now in front of him in Miletus, and he's talking to them, and he says, Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves, and to all the flock. Now, I want to ask you a question. Who is it that oversees a flock? A shepherd does. And now, did you know that when you call your pastor, pastor, you're calling him shepherd? Because in the New Testament church, the leadership role and responsibility of the God-called, God-ordained man that leads a congregation is called a shepherd. But he's also called an elder because the men that he called to Miletus were exclusively the elders, but they were also called the shepherds or the pastors. And by the way, and not just really by the way, but very, very profoundly, verse number 28 says, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. Now, let me pause just for a moment. You wonder, who is the pastor of a New Testament church? Well, according to the Bible in Acts chapter number 20, and again in 1 Peter chapter number 5, he is an elder. He is to be someone who is, is wise and has the ability to give godly counsel. And every elder needs to be a man who has great faith in God. Why? Because he is an example to the other believers and a guide to them in the decisions that they make. He is also at the same time to be the pastor, the shepherd over the flock, primarily tasked with feeding the flock of God. That's what you do when you allow the preacher, the pastor teacher, to have time to study the Word of God. You don't bug him about every little problem and every little pressure. He doesn't have to make every decision. But what he does is you give him time to study the Word of God so he can prepare sermons and nourish the flock of God. But he's also called a bishop. He's an overseer. And as relates to our church, he looks over. That's what it means. It's a business term of a boss. And so when you teach a Sunday school class and the pastor says, now I want to see what you're teaching. You can't go like this. Well, I don't have, think you have any right to see what I'm teaching. Oh, no, no, you don't understand the role of the pastor. He's also the bishop. He's an overseer. Now, the Bible says, look with me at 1 Peter chapter number 5, because this is very, very important for all of us to understand, and it relates to the message tonight. 1 Peter chapter number 5, the apostle Peter, now an old man, and he writes in verse number 1 to the elders. Verse 1, 1 Peter 5. The elders, he says, which are among you, I exhort, who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker, also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight, there it is again, the overseer, the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, not for money, but of a ready mind, neither is being, look at this, lords over God's heritage. The flock is God's. The church is God's. The pastor, the elder, the overseer is the one that the Bible says needs to not be a lord over that heritage. But notice the emphasis, verse 3 but being in samples to the flock. Every preacher is to be an elder, a shepherd, and a bishop. 
and he is to function in those responsibilities. Not, not exclusively to his preaching and teaching role and overseeing role, but in all of those responsibilities as an elder and as a pastor and as a bishop or overseer, he is to live his life in such a way that he could say, as Paul would say, be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. You see, when you come to Hebrews chapter number 11, the reason we meet these, these men and women is because God wanted to establish for these believers in Hebrews 11, he wanted to establish for these believers that were receiving this letter the importance of having dynamic faith in Jesus Christ and in God's word. Why? Because as we grow spiritually, everybody needs an example. We need somebody that we can see, someone that we can turn to, someone who lives a respectable life and who has wisdom that we can then glean from. So that's the first, that's the first word that's used here of all of these men and these ladies. They are elders. They are to have such a testimony. By the way, the Bible says the older women, the elder women, need to be examples and teachers to the younger women. Now, I'm not sure when a woman becomes an older woman, and I'm not going to give you the, the age, all right? But I can tell you this. Uh, when a woman's children are raised, uh, she's probably, if she's of that age, of, uh, where the children would be raised, if God's given her a husband and God's given her uh, uh, children, uh, then of that age, and whether she's single or married, uh, that's, you're getting to a point in your life where your life needs to be, because of your dynamic faith in Jesus Christ, you need, to, you need to aspire to be an elderly lady in the church whose wisdom can be sought by the younger mothers, by the younger women. You see, most of what we learn in life of great value is not simply taught, but it's caught through example. Now, I've had, I've had four pastors in my lifetime. And I, um, up until I was 29 years of age. And you know, I could only tell you two or three sermons that I can remember that any of those men ever preached. And I've been in church thousands and thousands of times. But I can tell you this. I can tell you how those men impacted my life by their example. In fact, when I went off to Bible college, I was 18 years of age. And I started attending the church that I now pastor, the North Love Baptist Church. And I grew up in southwestern Michigan along with Mrs. Kingsbury. And you know, in southwestern Michigan, uh, we don't say things like, you know, within the United States, you have different cultures. And our pastor at North Love Baptist Church happened to be from the south. And you know what he'd say? He'd say things like this. Now y'all come back to church tonight, you hear? Now, our pastor in, in, in Michigan, our pastors never said, y'all come back to church, you hear? They never spoke that way. They loved the Lord. But you know, there was a cultural difference. And when I went into North Love Baptist Church, I was used to going into church, and uh, they always had an organist, and the organist would play very, very quiet music, more like a funeral. And I went into North Love Baptist Church and there's a lady sitting on the piano and her whole body's moving as much as her fingers on the piano. And it's real loud and somebody's on the organ. Mrs. Bonner was there on the organ. She was as big as the organ in our church. And she's playing the organ there. You know, this was culturally different from me that I'd grown up with. Our pastor was very poised. And now I'm not being critical. I'm just simply, I want to talk to you about the power of example. And you don't, even, you don't even realize it. But at 18 years of age, I didn't realize how profoundly this southern preacher was impacting and influencing my life until I took homiletics. Yes, some of you are looking and say, you really had homiletics? What is homiletics? <laughs> homiletics is where they teach you how to preach the Bible, all right? And I did take homiletics. And in homiletics, though I had already been sitting under the ministry of this pastor, Pastor Alley, and Brother Burks, that's where I met Brother Burks. He was also mentored under him after Pastor Alley went to Lynchburg, Virginia, where he still lives today. But I remember at our church there, the little church at North Love, and it was just a, right now is our foyer, and we had what was called a modesty screen. And it was right across the front here. And Pastor Alley, when he was preaching, sometimes he'd get on a point, and he'd get up, and he'd jump over this modesty screen right into the 
Now, nobody ever did that. I never saw our pastors. Dr. Clark never did that. Pastor Rich never. Well, we didn't have a modesty screen there in our old church either. But you know, and he'd, he'd just talk with that southern drawl. And be, oh, so I take homiletics. And what they do in homiletics in our college, they, you get a sermon, about a 10-minute sermon, 15-minute sermon, and then uh, you stand up in front of the class and the professor sits there and all the class critique you. They listen, they watch, do you, how you gesture and how you talk and do you have eye contact with the people. And uh, so this is my first sermon that I've preached there. Now I had preached before in the jail and as soon as I got right with God, <laughs> they felt led <laughs> to say, well, you need to start preaching. So it was the jail and it was the, but here was homiletics class and they're out there critiquing me. Now I got done with my little tournament at Sermonette. And you know the professor, then they'd stand up publicly and just kind of talk about your sermon. It's really kind of embarrassing, especially for me that day. Because the professor got up and said, Mr. Kingsbury, he said, now I'd like to ask you a question. Where did you grow up? I said, well, I grew up in Michigan. My goodness, he said. You sound like you grew up in the deep south. I said, I do. He said, yes, when you, sir, when you preached, you sounded like a wind-sucking southern preacher. <laughs> I did? Yes, and then he said this, and when you were preaching, what in heaven's name is this? <laughs> I was jumping over an invisible modesty screen I didn't even know existed. Why? Why was I behaving in this strange way? Because unconsciously, unconsciously, I had, I had such admiration for this man who was my preacher that, he, that I adapted some of those idiosyncrasies about him and I had done it unconsciously. Now that's why Hebrews 11 is in the Bible. Because everybody in Hebrews 10, everybody who was receiving that lesson, that message from God, they needed to have not just a message written on a piece of paper called the Bible. They needed to have real live examples of people that were older in the faith that they could look at their life, they could listen to them, and they could learn how to trust God themselves. Amen. That's the point of it. Now he uses two other terms, and I'm not going to take nearly as much time on these. I'm just going to have to have time to mention them. But they're, they're, look at the other two nouns he uses of these extraordinary, exceptional men and women. He says, number one, they were elders. Number two, he says, they obtained a good report. They were obtainers of a good report. Listen to this word out of the Greek language. They would have heard this when they came to church and this was read. Listen to this word. Tell me what, if you think you can figure it out in the English language. Here's the word. Martyrao. Martyr. Now, when you and I think of a martyr, we think of somebody that gives their life for their faith. But a good report really means a, a good testimony. In fact, the first time that it's used in the Bible is found in I, Isaiah. And uh, these obtainers of a good report, in fact, uh, well, well, for time's sake, you know, you're looking through these things, you're thinking, oh my goodness. If I do this, we'll be here to midnight. And I'm not going to do that. You say, why don't you preach till midnight? Well, Paul did. That's right. But Paul could also raise people from the dead. I can't. And so we're going to get out before 830. All right. But you know, an obtainer of a good report is this. It is someone who has a testimony, who has a reputation that is sterling, that is, that is, that is profoundly good. Uh, people who obtain a good report, as the Bible says here of these 16 men and women, if you would have studied their biographies, if you would have studied their life. Now, by the way, we know some bad things about these people, don't we? I think, of, I think maybe in all of them that are mentioned here, maybe Joseph, you don't really know. I know he must have sinned. Uh, we just aren't told any of them. And, uh, and then, uh, then Abel. But you know the rest of them, they had, they had made some big blunders in their lives. Aren't you glad that our blunders don't have to determine our overall testimony in life? Amen. And you know what happened when these men and women did make blunders, when they blew it, they just simply got right with God, got right with each other. And you know what? The Lord still gave them a wonderful testimony and a reputation. And God said at the end of their life, they received a good, a good report. That's your testimony. That's your reputation. Remember when we're introduced to Cornelius in Acts chapter number 10, he's introduced as a man who had a good report among the Jews. In other words, if you said to the Jewish people, even though Cornelius was a Gentile, 
and a centurion, he worked in the Roman army and oversaw a hundred men. They said, if you talk to those in his community that were Jewish people, said, what do you think of this Cornelius? They'd say, oh my goodness, he's a man of sterling character. He's a man that's so honest. He's a man that has genuine compassion and he cares about people. You know, he had a wonderful testimony. Uh, the Bible uses this same term in Acts 6, verse number 3 in the selection of deacons in the early church. They had to be men of honest report. It's the same term. They had to be martyreos. They had to have a good testimony. And so it is that these, uh, these examples that are presented to us are men and ladies of whom the Bible says they all had a good testimony. Now it's imperative then that if we're going to be examples to others that we also are going to have to have a good testimony. You know, I have to be on guard. I have to be on guard all of the time. I have to watch every dimension of my life because there are people around me who need an example. Not only to listen to my words, but more than listening to my words, they're going to look at my life. Now, you know, this is no, this is no truer than in our homes. I'm talking about where we live with our family. And you know, children, we can tell them what to do, but it's far better and more effective and impacting if we can show them how to live. And you know how we should live? We should live with a pure and honest testimony. That means that there's nobody in the community can say, you know what, you cheated me and you never got it right. Nobody could say, you know, you wronged me, but you never, you never asked for forgiveness. That could even be our own children, could be our own family members. You understand what I mean? You see, the Bible exalts these individuals. They were men and women of great faith. How did they demonstrate their great faith? Well, they grew to a position where when you needed advice and you wanted godly advice, you thought, man, I'm going to go talk to them because they're going to give me godly advice. When you thought about these individuals, you thought, now here's somebody that has a wonderful testimony. Boy, there's nothing you can say about them where they just, they just did this wrong and they never got it right. You see, that's what the world needs. That's what the younger believers need. They need examples that will live their lives in such a way with a testimony that is above reproach. Now, number three, he says that they pleased God. And the Bible says this in verse number five and six, by faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death and was not found because God had translated him for before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Now, if you talked about these men that are mentioned here and these ladies then, and you said, what is it about their faith that was so extraordinary? Well, they were an example of being elders. They were older people that you could follow, you could listen to, go to them for advice. They also, you knew that they had a wonderful testimony, a good testimony, a great reputation. And you knew, thirdly, that God was pleased. In fact, the word there is well pleased with their lives. Same term that's used of Jesus at his baptism. This is my beloved son, the father said, in whom I am well pleased. And God said of, of Abel, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He pleased God with his life. Now, the term actually comes from a, a phrase that means to gratify God entirely. Strong's Dic Greek Dictionary says it means fully agreeable, accepted, and well-pleasing. You see, when you and I exercise biblical faith in God, the more we trust in Him, the more well-pleasing we are to Him. And the better testimony and reputation that we're going to have, and the wiser we will become. And then our lives, well-pleasing unto the Lord, and as a sterling testimony around us, and then as someone you can go to it for advice, we then become the conduit by which God encourages other believers, particularly younger believers, to follow our example. You know, in education, it is not simply what is taught from a book that educates an individual. It is the example of the teacher. In fact, in the Bible days, remember when Paul was educated? He was educated at the feet of Gamaliel. In other words, it wasn't just what Gamaliel was saying 
but it was Gamaliel's life that was impacting and influencing him. And so it is in the Christian life. Everyone that comes to Christ for salvation, along life's way, they need human beings. They need men and ladies who will grow and mature in their faith in the Lord, who will, will become a wonderful example as an elder, who will live their lives with such uh, testimony of, uh, of purity and righteousness that others can look at them as an example. And their lives will so please God that other people will be motivated to follow that same example. And so it is that these people that needed this message, they had two major problems that were assisted by the examples of Hebrews 11. What are those problems? This I'm done. Look at Hebrews 10, beginning at verse number 32. The Bible says, but call to remembrance the former days in which after you were illuminated. What a beautiful word for getting saved. Uh, you endured a great fight of afflictions, partly whilst you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst you became companions of them that were so used. For you had compassion of me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. So far, so good. This probably covered about 25, maybe 30 years in these people's lives. Some of them less, maybe perhaps some of them longer. But now notice the danger. Verse 35, cast not away therefore your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. What problem were they facing that led them to need the examples of Hebrews 11? Why, they were ready to quit. But somebody that had lived a life exemplary because of their faith in God was used by the Lord to encourage them to not quit, to not give up, but to keep on doing the right thing and serving God with their lives. That's why church is a community. It's not an individual life. God designed us to community with other people so that the older people in the faith can become examples to the younger people in the faith and it can be an encouragement to them to keep pressing on for the Lord. Now I'm 64 years of age. I'll be 65 my next birthday next June. And I've had the privilege being in the same church since I was 18 years of age. And I doubt that you could, if you got all the people together that I've been privileged to pastor, I doubt that they could tell, name you very many sermons that I've ever preached. But I'll tell you what I want to be. I want to be the kind of man who has such faith in God that those that choose to be near me can come to me for advice and counsel and I'll give them good advice. I want to live my life in such a way that no one can say, you know what, Pastor Kingsbury's a hypocrite. And I want to live my life in such a way that I please God. Not just because it's the right thing to do, but because if the next generation doesn't see that in the older people in our church, then we're gone. We're done for. Now then, for those that are younger in the faith, I would challenge you to aspire to become men and women of great faith in God. Because in your part of life, there's undoubtedly someone who's looking on you. They're not looking. They may not be able to be close to the preacher, but they're going to be close to you. You say, well, I'm only a year old in Christ, or I've only been in really in uh, serving God for a year. All right, I'll guarantee you that if you're in the community of a church, that you have people that are looking to you and at your testimony. And you know what? If you don't demonstrate a sterling testimony of character, you could become a stumbling block to them. You see, it's not just the older people that need to have great faith in God. The younger ones need to have great faith in God. In fact, in many, many ways, for most of my life, it's been this way. I was looking to someone, for someone that had a great example, that I could go to for counsel, and that I could know that their lives were pleasing unto God, and I could follow them, and I could learn from them. But at the same time, with this hand reaching out to somebody else that needed someone who was older 
and could be a good counselor and would live a sterling testimony and would have great faith in God and please God with their lives so that I might bring them along also. And that's the Christian life the way it's supposed to be lived. I'm looking to these that God will put into my life that they're going to help me and then I'm also helping somebody else to come along. And that's how the Christian life, how people mature in their relationship with the Lord. Sure, I learned a few silly habits. I think I got over them. I don't say y'all. I'll come back to church you here now and I haven't jumped over an invisible. But I'll tell you this, that pastor that I had the privilege of mentoring under for 11 years profoundly impacted and influenced my life. And you know what I believe? I believe that he'll share in every victory and every blessing of my life because he was willing to live his life as an example to the believers. Let's pray together. In summary, the challenge is to become a Hebrews 11 kind of Christian. To ask God to help us to so fully and maturely trust in Him that we will become an elder, a person to whom others can look for counsel and know that they'll hear from God. To have a good testimony, a reputation that is sterling of and above reproach. And then that our lives would please God. And then for those of us that are along the journey of life and still need someone to go to for advice and counsel, that we, we would be followers of these individuals. You know, sometimes in our stubbornness and our young, young faith, we refuse to listen to wise, godly counselor to look to them. Separate yourselves from fools and connect yourself to people that are of great faith in God and you will become a greater person, a better person in your life and God will make you to become an example to someone else. Now perhaps you'd say tonight with our heads bowed and eyes closed, well, Pastor Kingsbury, first of all, I'm not even sure that I belong to Christ. If I were to die tonight, I'm not sure that I would go to heaven. Is that your situation this evening? Now, friend, I'm so glad that you're here in church at LifeGate Baptist on this Wednesday night because we have individuals here that know how to take a Bible and show you how you can know for sure that when this life is over, heaven is your home. And I wonder this evening if someone might say with an uplifted hand, Pastor Kingsbury, that's my need. I'm really not sure that when this life is over, I'll go to heaven when I die. I've seen the illustration that Brother Burks used earlier and I'm still carrying the bag of my sins. I understand it now. Please pray for me, Pastor, that I'll settle this matter of my eternal destiny, this matter of my salvation. Could I pray for you? Would you lift your hand and let me pray for you? Have anyone like that at all in the auditorium, in the audience tonight? I want to pray for you. God bless you, ma'am. Thank you very much. God bless you, sir. That's wonderful. Do we have anyone else with us this evening who say, I'm just not sure but I'd like to know that for sure. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for these that have raised their hands and are sincere in their desire to know you in a personal way. And I pray that even this evening you'll give to them extraordinary courage that they would realize that they're among people that love them and that care about them and that are their friends. And I pray that you will give them that courage to step out, let someone take a Bible and show them how they can have this settled. Now, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, we're just going to take a moment. I've asked Pastor to be at the back of the auditorium. And those of you that raised your hand, I'm not here. We're certainly not here to embarrass you in any way. We're glad you're here and glad that you've acknowledged this need. Now, there's another step that you could take that I think would be very helpful for you. And that is to just step out from where you are and just go to the back of the auditorium. And there, there are ladies and men that will take a, a man that will take a Bible and show you, you, sir, how you can know for sure you can make the decision as they show you from God's word. Would you be willing, sir, to just quietly get up and go to the back there and see the pastor about this matter? If you would, we'll give you this moment to make that decision. I'd like to invite you to do that. And how about you, ma'am? You raised your hand and you would like to have this settled. And if you'd like to take care of it right now in just these next few minutes, we're not talking about joining LifeGate Baptist Church or any such thing. 
but just someone will take a Bible and show you. We'd like to give you that opportunity. Now then, for those of us that know Christ as our personal Savior, to be an example <clears throat> and to follow an example is important. No, it's more than that. It's imperative. But in order for that to happen, we're going to have to become men and women of extraordinary faith in God. And I want to ask our pianist to come. Oh, she's right there at the piano. And, and uh, I want to invite you this evening to come as this conference is concluding tonight and use the altar as a believer, asking God to help you to become that kind of an example to those that are following after you and watching your life that you might become a greater man or woman of faith in God. And I want to invite you to make those decisions. As we stand to our feet and, the lady, and our sister begins to play the song of invitation, I want to invite you to come and use the altar this evening. The best sermon is the sermon of a changed life. That's what really impacts and influences others, you know. God help us to be willing by the grace of God to become a, a better elder, someone that others can turn to for good advice, to be available for them with their questions and take time for them to bring them into our lives that we might influence them for Christ. To not become so busy in our own personal lives that we forget that there are others that need more than a sermon. They need somebody that will come alongside and be an example to them. Where would Paul have been without Ananias coming by and praying with him and the scales falling from his eyes? Where would he have been without Barnabas who took him alongside when others would not, would not believe him? And, and so it is in the Christian life. We all need somebody that we can look to as an example. We can listen to for advice. And then to be that example for them. And then to follow that example. Some of you need to commit yourself to following the godly examples of those that he has placed in your life, perhaps in leadership or even as a peer. This is an opportunity for those decisions. Uh, Lord, we live in a generation, Lord, that needs a testimony of you and your power to change and your truth in their lives. Lord, may we be just that, Lord. Would you work it that we, we would be that testimony in lives and hearts. And Lord, may the glory all go to you in Jesus' name. Amen.